1: Welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Pilato, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We are actually at the Deloitte Oil and Gas Conference in Houston, Texas, and have been able to catch up with quite a few oil executives and some of the Deloitte executives to uh, understand what's going on at their conference and to bring it straight to you guys because some of you couldn't attend that. So we want you to stay tuned, we'll be bringing it to you here shortly. But first I wanna talk to you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine. Our cover, this issue is ConocoPhillips in which we talk a little bit about the amazing company, their great work that they did in handling Hurricane Harvey and of course the chairman and CEO Ryan Lance as well. It's an issue that you definitely want to read. So I encourage you to go to shellmag.com. Again, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com and read all about ConocoPhillips and Ryan Lance. And now it's time to bring on our resident energy expert and editor of Shell Magazine, David Blackman. David, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, it's a beautiful
1: day in Texas. It sure is. It's the weather's changing and I love fall. Um, Of course, the allergy seasons are here, too. So you can hear it kind of in my voice. A lot of people (laughs) are complaining. Well, listen, we just came off of a um, very interesting election cycle um, or midterm, if you will. And uh, I think uh, I want to talk a little bit about what does this mean for the oil and gas industry? Um, So let's start with so we all kind of know that the Republicans kept the Senate looks like the Democrats are keeping the house. And, uh, my question though, is, um, what is this, um, divide that Congress has right now? What do you think it's going to mean for the oil and gas industry?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. So, you know, we, we will have the the new democratic majority there in the house and, uh, Republicans increase their majority in the Senate is a very rare outcome in a midterm election where you know either party wins one or the other houses usually they go to kind of move together but just because of the, the mass and the breakdown of, of what seats were up in the Senate this time you kind of dictated that outcome so uh, so from the oil and gas industry standpoint honestly um, a divided government that doesn't do a whole lot is generally, uh, the healthiest situation for the oil and gas industry. This is an industry that uh, is heavily reliant on predictability and regulations and the laws that govern their operation. And uh, so as the pace of change becomes slower in a divided government, you know, that's actually a healthy thing for for not just really the oil and gas industry, but any any corporation that's a big business that has to be able to plan its business and its operations out you know over a period of a year or two at a time and uh so you know the industry is actually has no problem at all with a divided government and and quite honestly just from my, my own personal standpoint i've always thought uh it's probably the healthiest situation for the country as well although we're going to have a lot of partisan rancor you know with all the investigations that are now going to happen but um uh, but, you know, that's just the way our government works. And uh, so, it's you know, from the industry's perspective, it's fine.
1: So a slowdown is a good thing. Let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about the failure uh, in Colorado, their Prop 112. Uh, what was it? What did it mean for the energy industry? And then um, the Alaska ballot issue one, which would yeah. have enacted major new regulation fees and roadblocks to the oil and gas development.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about Alaska first since people haven't heard about it much. It was on the ballot up there and it would have, as you say, really imposed major new restrictions on the oil and gas industry up there. And I think most people of our listeners certainly are aware that the oil and gas industry is really the life's blood uh, for that state's state government. It it funds most of the state government up there and uh, You know, the people ultimately decided that, hey, uh, we, you know, we really like the oil and gas industry and only 36 percent of the people voted in favor of that particular ballot initiative Um, in Colorado. You know, we did talk about this a couple of weeks ago that that initiative would have enacted a very big setback rule that would have said that uh, you couldn't drill a well within two thousand five hundred feet or eight hundred yards, basically, of uh, any occupied dwelling or any sensitive area uh, that was not really defined what that means uh, by the regulation, so it would have all been left to interpretation of the courts and would have basically, you know, dragged the industry down into uh, a thousand different lawsuits over a thousand different areas. So the voters uh, at the end of the day opposed that by fifty-eight forty-two margin and uh, the industry, you know, will continue to be pretty healthy in Colorado as well.
1: Very good. Very good. Uh, let's discuss the Cruz Beto election uh, and uh, the results here in Texas as a result of uh, Ted Cruz winning the election.
2: Yeah, that was boy. That turned out to be very close. You know, I thought I thought Cruz honestly would end up winning by eight to ten percent of the vote. And uh, uh, O'Rourke, to his you know to his credit, he had a ton of money and a, a ton of energy. We've probably never had a more energetic um, candidate for the Senate here in Texas. And uh, he ran a you know a largely positive campaign, which also was to his credit. Cruz also ran a largely positive campaign. I, I, t- I got to tell you, I got so sick of all the negative television ads in this campaign coming from other races. And and it was good to see both of these guys running uh, you know, pretty clean and positive campaigns, not not entirely, but pretty much so. And th- the thing that O'Rourke did, uh, as much as anything, was impact other elections further down the ballot. That was the top of the ticket, as everybody saw who went to vote, it was the first election listed on the ballot. And, you know, he ran the closest statewide election of any Democrat this time, he only lost by 3%. And, you know, most of the others lost by 5 to 10 to 12, you know, the governor won by 13%, I think. And, and so that had a big impact all the way down the ballot. And So what you saw out of that was because of O'Rourke's influence there, and all the money he poured into it, Uh, the Democrats were able to pick off two state Senate seats. Um, They defeated Connie Burton and and Don Huffines up in the Metroplex area. Uh, And that was huge for the Democrats because had they not been able to turn those two seats, the Republicans were about to have a super majority in the Senate, a 21 to 10 advantage it would have been. But instead, because the Democrats won those two seats, it's now a 19 to 12 breakdown between the two parties in the Senate, and there's a two-thirds uh, vote requirement to get any bill to the floor of the Senate for those who are not aware. And so that's going to really slow down the pace of what uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick is going to be able to get done there. Um, in the House, they, they turned 12 seats in the House. Now, that just means that the Republicans still have an 85 to 65-seat to majority there. I mean, they still have a very strong majority, but that, you know, turning 12 seats in the House of Representatives in one election is a big deal. So uh, that was a fascinating race, I think, for everyone to watch. And I just, you know, I mean, you saw a lot of jokes going around here all over the place on Twitter and social media. But at the end of the day, you know, I think you just have to tip your hat to O'Rourke and his campaign uh, for, for coming so close.
1: And the amount of money that he raised uh, was just mind-boggling as well.
2: Yeah, it really was. We, we've we never had anybody spend close to that in a, in a Senate election in Texas.
1: Let's switch gears real quick and talk about the latest development uh, with Jeff Sessions being replaced. Who might replace him? What do you think the outcome will be also with who his replacement is?
2: Yeah, I, you know, that's a good question. I mean, there's rumors all over the place. Uh, I know that uh, there's a short list, and it includes Chris Christie and Rudy Giuliani, uh, who you know you would expect to be on the list. They're both uh, federal prosecutors, both of whom were the head of the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office for a time back in the day. I, I doubt Rudy Giuliani, at at his age, he's I think 78 years old now, would be really interested in that job. Christie is only about 60 and uh, probably has a lot of energy for it. And then. You know, you also have people out there like John Ratcliffe, who's a congressman from Texas, another former U.S. attorney, uh, who is also apparently on the list. Trey Gowdy, who uh, is currently a congressman from South Carolina, but will retire at the end of the year, you know, has been very high profile, is supposedly on this list. And, it, you know, it just goes on and on. And so we're we're going to have a new attorney general. I don't think anyone, at least as of the time we're recording this, knows who it's going to be. but. Uh, uh, you know, that's always a, a key office and uh, it's going to have a big impact on what happens politically here in the coming two years. What about also the uh,
1: the Mueller investigation? Just quickly, do you think it'll have any change in it? The new replacement or? Yeah,
2: no, I think it'll you'll you'll have a stronger oversight. I, you know, Rod Rosenstein obviously has been content to let uh, Mr. Mueller go anywhere he wants to with that investigation, and and that really shouldn't, regardless of your political views, it's not healthy for this country to have a prosecutor sitting there with unlimited scope and unlimited budget, uh, just going all over the place forever. Uh, these are not lifetime appointments. They need to have a beginning, an end, and a clear scope of operation. And Rosenstein, unfortunately, has just not been willing to put any sidebars on Mr. Mueller. So I do think, you know, that Mr. Whitaker, the acting attorney general, is going to probably be be willing to do more of that. And I I suspect the new attorney general will, too. But I, I don't think anyone should think this means Mr. Mueller is going to be fired. I don't think there's any intention of that happening. He's clearly... Been in the process of winding his investigation down over the last two months, and I suspect we'll see a final report out of him within the next few weeks, really.
1: David, that is all the time we have. Um, Look forward to having you on next week, in which hopefully we'll have, of course, a lot more oil and gas to talk about, and maybe some of this political fallout as well. Until next week, thank you.
2: Thanks, I look forward to it. And with
1: that, we do have to take a quick break. But when we return, we will be jumping straight into the Deloitte Oil and Gas Conference, talking to some of the executives that were presenting at the Deloitte Oil and Gas Conference this year. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back.
0: In the Oil Patch Radio Show is proud to bring you this week's Energy Minute, produced by shalemag.com. Here's Texas Railroad Commissioner Ryan Sitton with your current industry update. Last week, U.S. oil production averaged 11.6 million barrels per day, according to the EIA. This is
3: a massive 2 million barrels a day more than the same period last year and 400,000 barrels more than the week earlier. October production was 11.4 million barrels per day, and forecasts are that U.S. production can grow to 12.1 million barrels a day on average next year. In other news, OPEC's Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee will meet this weekend. Saudi Arabia and Russia had agreed to raise production ahead of U.S. sanctions on Iran, but falling markets could prompt the change of plans. WTI lost 62 cents yesterday to close at $61.59 per barrel.
0: Listen to In the Oil Patch Radio and keep up with the oil and gas industry online at shalemag.com. Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com.
1: Welcome back to End the All Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and recently I attended the Deloitte Oil and Gas Conference. So while attending the conference, I was able to catch up with John England and Dwayne Dixon. Let's get into the interview. Dwayne. you are the Vice Chairman for U.S. Oil and Gas and Chemical Leaders
4: for Deloitte Consulting. Yes, it's great to be here.
1: Thank you. And John England, you're a partner for Deloitte in the oil and gas sector.
4: Yes, yes.
1: So welcome to the show. This will be the first time Thank you me. guys are with us. We're really excited about uh, covering the Deloitte Conference. There's a lot of people here.
3: Yes, today. there is. Uh-huh.
1: Meaning you guys really have a lot to say on oil and gas, and you're pulling in a lot of the majors, and we can tell from how Mm full the room was. And before we get started, I wanted to talk to you, John, briefly. Um, I was listening to you on stage on your opening remarks, and you were discussing how you all had been personally affected by Hurricane Harvey. Yes. Well, we also got affected. And um, it was nice to hear you discuss how People come together in a moment of crisis, and it kind of led into um, a lot of the discussion that you were talking about. Um, so, do you want to kind of cover a little bit?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what what I mentioned just is you know, I think uh, an event like Hurricane Harvey's, you know, kind of reminded me, you know, how good people are, how generous people can be in, in our community, because we saw so much of that across the whole Gulf Coast. Um, and it reminded me what's important in my life. And, and you know, but by the same token, it also reminded me that what we do as an industry is important. And you know, I, I think that's important to me because um, you have to feel like you have a purpose and that you're doing something that's good for the world. And I think a lot of times we will find ourselves having to kind of defend the oil and gas industry. And you know, I don't think we should have to because I think we, we do something that's important. We deliver a commodity that the world needs. We you know, do that safely, efficiently, effectively. And so you know, people need to be proud to be part of this industry.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, and um, seeing um, how the energy industry came to the, and rose to the occasion, um, ConocoPhillips was actually on our cover, and why we covered that company specifically was the way that they responded to Hurricane Harvey was amazing, and I wanted, we wanted the community to understand what they were doing for, not just Eagle Ford, Houston as well, the residents, which we were all affected in that area, so it was a great thing to Um, Let's switch gears and just talk a little bit about, um, you guys have just released a new survey. It was released today at your conference, and it was covering the up, down, and midstream, and what you guys really believe is coming. So let's start by first of all discussing, tell me a little bit about uh, what you're finding the key takeaways are from the upstream, midstream, and downstream sectors in the new survey that Deloitte produced.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, maybe I'll start with kind of upstream and, and midstream, and then let Dwayne talk about downstream. And um, you know, I'd say overall, invest or the overall sentiment of the executives across all, all the industry was was much better. There was much more optimism from you know 2018 to versus 2017. Um, in upstream, you know, I think that people think prices are going to get better. We saw people that have higher expectations for both oil and natural gas prices, and so there was optimism around that. You know, I think there's still some wariness in the upstream um, because. I think people are concerned about rising, you know, costs, or concerned about midstream bottlenecks, things like that. But but overall there is much higher sense of optimism and we think that's gonna to lead to some um, you know, greater investment going forward. You know, on the midstream side I think there's a huge opportunity. In fact we probably saw the biggest shift in in, in um, sentiment from midstream executives because they really see significant opportunity. You know, we've heard a lot about some of the bottlenecks um, coming particularly out of the Permian and those create real opportunity for midstream companies to build infrastructure. So, um, some great opportunities there.
4: Yeah, and in the downstream, uh, I think we're seeing optimism and this has been an area that's typically had pretty thin margins and a pretty, you know, tough go to to run the operations and make money. And uh, the, the, The profit margins have improved about $2.20 a barrel from 2017 to 2019. The uh, capital expenditures have started to move into the area. In fact, there's been as much capital spent in the last four years as there were in the last 40 uh, in the downstream, and uh, that also goes for the petrochemical space. And Petrochemicals has also enjoyed a pretty good ride. So we saw a lot of optimism. We saw a lot of the outlook to be positive and for further growth.
1: Well, no doubt the past couple of years have really been a very hard thing for anyone that was in the energy industry. And so um, seeing it starting to recover and stabilize is a good thing. Tell me, how do upstream industries reduce the cost while increasing their production as they bounce back from the downward turn? Yeah.
3: Um, I mean, we saw so much cost reduction come as a result of the downturn. People had, when they have to cut costs, they find ways to do it. Um, and some of that was via brute force, but going forward, I think we're seeing companies really think about how can they be more um, innovative in terms of how they reduce costs, and particularly by the use of digital technologies. So we're seeing so much more digital technology being deployed into the the whole kind of um, oil field, um, you know, for other everywhere from how we produce hydrocarbons, how we move them, um, supply, chains, etc. And uh, we think there's a lot more opportunity there. I think we're in the really early stages of, of the digital game.
1: I'm curious um, about the upward stream and using uh, technology. Um, have you found that they are um, really taking advantage of it right now? And then the infrastructure issues that they're dealing with Permian Basin right now, is that still uh, going to be a problem? And, for, and if so, for how long?
3: Well, I mean, on the infrastructure issues, uh, there's a lot of pipeline projects under construction, under, underway right now. So we, we think some of the bottlenecks will start to lift um, in 2019, and certainly by 2020, we think most of those will be gone. It, it's interesting, though, some of the, the, the bottlenecks may just shift further downstream because, you know, in addition to having pipeline capacity, you, you also need you know, gas gathering and processing, uh, you need fractionation to, to separate the natural gas liquids, and you need export capacity to, to really. Uh, you know, optimize the whole value chain. So we think that there's still other opportunity. But, you know, when there's opportunity, you know, people seize it. And so we think midstream companies will come in and build out that, that infrastructure.
1: Especially in the energy sector.
3: Yeah, we're very very opportunistic group.
1: You guys released a brand new study here at your conference, and that's some of the nature of what we're trying to talk about. And we uh, definitely want to get into some of the uh, information that you guys released. But I want to talk and just change gears a little bit about some of the um, – geopolitical things that are happening right now I know the survey may or may not have gone into it but do you guys feel that policy and geopolitical forces are concerning domestically or on a global standpoint
3: I mean I I think that um, there's certainly some there are a lot of things going on I mean I think if you think about the the oil and gas industry it's a very global industry by nature Uh, which has global supply chains um, and that's part of the efficiency we've gained over the years is to have that global nature so you know I think um, Global free trade is is really key to that, and so I think some of the the trade wars, and the the tariffs, and and the protectionism we're starting to see creep in around the world. I, you know, I think those are issues, and, and frankly, concerns that. Um, I have that I probably didn't really expect to see for the industry in the past but I think it's it, they're becoming a bigger issue and there's something really going to have to watch because you know the US has become a pretty big exporter of um, you know petrochemical of uh, LNG of crude oil and, and refined products and so if we're you know unable to freely you know move those products around the world then it really impacts the, the future of the industry so I think it's it's one of those areas we're really watching kind of cautiously now
1: well gentlemen we're going to take a quick break but when we return I want to get back on midstream and downstream you're listening to and the oil patch radio show and we'll be right back
5: oil filled experts is the only place you need to go to locate any part any time for your automotive or oil filled equipment needs Specializing in hard-to-find oil-filled parts for your fleet maintenance needs, oil-filled experts have been providing parts and accessories to keep your tools turning since 1965. From the auto repair shop to the pump jack, call us to get the right part right now. Here's the number, so write it down. Oil-filled experts, 210-471-1923. Again, that's 210-471-1923.
1: Welcome back to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. We are joined today by Dwayne Dixon, who is the Vice Chairman and U.S. Oil, Gas, and Chemical Leader for Deloitte Consulting LLP, and John England, who is a partner with Oil and Gas for Deloitte. Dwayne, why don't you take this question? Sure. Tell me a little bit about the downstream sector. Um, in the study, it kind of uh, reflected that the use of electronic cars and things that we're using in the way of more of. Um, electronics pertaining to vehicles that the that the executives and in in the survey really did not seem to find that to be too troubling what was what are your thoughts on is this going to become a disruptor
4: Um, right now what we're seeing is a trend that looks exponential meaning it's doubling every six months to a year in terms of the adoption of electric vehicles but we're still at uh, 1% of the total vehicle population or 1% to 3% of the total vehicle count. So it's really not going to show up uh, as much in, in terms of uh, lost volume or changes in the fuel supply. Uh, and we'll just have to wait and see what that's going to look like longer term.
1: Will it be something, do you think, like what we saw with um, the internet and computers, where as soon as technology started to develop, they were developing at a, just this rapid pace. that was going faster and faster and faster. Um, do you see that?
4: It has that potential. Um, the um, the ability to uh, operate electric vehicles sort of changes the entire powertrain, makes things a lot simpler, um, and then the whole move towards autonomous vehicles and fleet-driven uh, transportation and so forth is sort of changing the transportation patterns we're used to. and may change, you know, the amount of fuel that gets used and, and the type of fuel that gets used over time.
1: You know, you may not be able to talk on this, but I was having a discussion with an engineer and they were discussing, uh, he had just purchased a Tesla mm-hmm. and he was pretty excited about that Tesla car. And uh, it has a camera in it and, you know, his belief, well, he was really going on about that, you know, at some point uh, we won't even, they will become an Uber and uh, more people will use those type of cars mm-hmm. and um, have them, uh, homes will be built more to uh, to, to uh, accommodate uh, the electric car mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Just mm-hmm. very, very uh, surprising to hear what he believed would be happening in the future and how uh, it was really gonna impact uh, yeah. the type of vehicles
4: yeah. that we we'll One possible future. Yeah.
3: Uh, uh, one thing I was just gonna add, I mean, I think that, that, that there is some interesting, you know, it's interesting to compare it to, you know, cell phone adoption and things like that. But, you know, I think one big difference is the, the capital, the kind of installed capital base is much higher in, in this area. People's, you know, you think a typical automotive vehicle is, you know, call it $30,000. So people don't just change that overnight. Um, and even if everybody bought EVs tomorrow, it would take, you know, 20 years to kind of work through the system. So...
1: so it's a long-term
3: change. It's a long-term change. I mean, something's happening. And we're in an energy transition, no, no doubt about it, but I, I think it's... Uh, I don't think it will be quite as rapid as some some people
4: think. I think most people believe we'll see the effects between 2023 and 2025 if they're going to show up in a significant way.
1: Very interesting. Talk to me about the report in the the, uh, petrochemical area. What do you guys see happening there?
4: In the petrochemical space, uh, so first thing is we're seeing uh, a lot of capacity go in in the U.S., uh, mainly because of the feedstock advantage due to shale. Um, I think we're also seeing... uh, uh, three possibly four good years in a row especially for the petrochemicals and we'll we'll see kind of how that goes over time uh, we we are starting to see a drop in ethylene price which means that more there's more abundance of ethylene and uh, as a result of that what we could see over time is uh, a little bit of a trough but it seems to me that everybody kind of took their time and was very deliberate about the capital expenditures. And it looks like everything's kind of coming on stream in a good sequence. So I don't think we're going to look at one of those sort of really massive troughs that we've seen in the past. We'll probably see something that is a, a bit more muted and a, and a bit more manageable.
1: Interesting. Last question, midstream. And, John, this might be for you. Yeah. Uh, where do you see midstream going in uh, the midstream operators? How are they going to operate here in the near future?
3: Well, I mean, it's interesting. So we, we've been exploring this midstream question for a long time. We wrote a paper back in 2013, and we talked about the rise of the midstream major and the fact that you were having these really large companies um, come up in the midstream. Um, and we're, we've really seen that come to fruition. There's four or five really large companies that are across multiple geographies, multiple commodities um, that'll, I think, be big in the future. But in addition to that, I mean, we're also seeing growth in terms of private equity money coming into midstream. So the is there, when you have this much growth you know, in the shale production zone, Um, often that aren't uh, that close to the refining area, the processing areas. That just gives rise to the need for this midstream infrastructure. So, you know, I think there's continued need there. I think as we move to more exports, there's going to be need around that. So a lot of opportunity um, and a lot of capital flowing into the midstream space.
1: Very interesting. John, Duane, thank you for coming and talking to us today, and we look forward to talking to you guys later on on the show that I think we're going to get more in-depth into the actual survey that you guys Released today here at the Great. Deloitte Conference. Thank you. We look Great. forward to it. Thanks. And with that, I do want to take a moment to thank John and Dwayne for joining us here uh, in the Oil Patch and giving us a quick interview. But with that, we do have to take a quick break. When we return, we'll be joined by Robert McNally, who is founder and president of Rapidan Energy Group. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back.
0: again that's 210-240-7188.
1: And welcome back to End the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellato, and recently I attended the Deloitte Oil and Gas Conference. I was able to also catch up with an amazing person, Robert McNally, who is the founder and president of Rapidan Energy Group. He's also the author of Crude Volatility, the History and the Future of Boom, Bust and Oil Prices. So let's get into that interview now. You just got off stage, you were uh, our keynote for lunch, Uh, and you said some really interesting things uh, that caught my attention, a lot of it uh, had to do with OPEC and uh, Mm -hmm. what potentially could be happening, but I I want to start with, tell us a little bit about what makes your company, uh, Rapidon Energy, unique in the sense that you're counseling, you're consulting with energy companies, so what is your company in the way of, what are you promote, or what do you do in helping energy companies be successful?
5: Thank you. Well So Rapid End Energy Group, uh, which I founded nine years ago, its mission is to try to keep investors in the oil and energy sector, and that could be hedge funds or oil and gas producing companies or equity investors, from being surprised by trends and events that affect either the price of energy or their costs. And those surprises can come from three areas that we look at. Uh, The markets, looking at supply and demand forces. Policy and regulations, so important in oil and energy generally, and geopolitics. And Kim, that's why I've always been fascinated with oil since my earliest professional days, 27 years ago. Because oil does bring together those three phenomenally interesting and separate areas, markets, policy, and geopolitics. With my background and my team's background in the White House and the intelligence community and foreign policy, but also in banks and consulting firms that did the analysis and so forth, uh, we were able to bring together expertise in those three areas and give our clients a kind of a holistic view, an integrated view of what's driving either energy prices, uh, or energy costs, or regulations, and that kind of thing.
1: So, who is your client? Out of curiosity, is it um, investment groups, or is it energy companies, we or have is it an a eclectic?
5: Oh, okay. Yeah, we have an eclectic bunch. We have a mix. We have. Uh, I came from the hedge fund world. I worked at a company called Tudor Investment, and they are kind enough to allow me to say that they are a client still. So, I'm very proud that uh, Paul Tudor Jones and Tudor Investment, where I worked for 12 years, is a client. Uh, otherwise, we have other hedge funds of the type of uh, firm that Tudor is. We have major oil companies, the names you, you, you uh, recognize, shale oil producers. We have commodity trading firms. We have private equity firms, folks who are lending and investing to directly to the energy sector or sectors associated with energy services and so forth are our clients. Their perspectives range from what's going to happen at the December 7th OPEC plus meeting oh, we're to, get to, to uh, what's going to happen in 30 years with demand and so forth. So it's a nice mixed group with a mixed perspective and mixed timelines. Mm-hmm.
1: So so let's back up just a little bit and yeah. tell me what, I mean, when you said you wanted to write this book, right. because uh, oil prices went really, really high and then it just dropped off. In your opinion, what was it that caused this Boom and bust.
5: Right. It's the same thing that caused boom and busts in, in past history that we looked at. And what it is is it's when you have an imbalance in supply and demand for oil, a pretty big imbalance. In the case of 15 years ago, it was voraciously thirsty Chinese demand on the one side, and then an inability of the oil producing industry to increase supply fast enough. So you had strong demand and weak supply. That was an imbalance. Now imbalances we see all the time, but what made that boom interesting was there was no swing producer able to sort of throw a lot of extra oil on the market and prevent that Chinese demand from causing prices to skyrocket. So then in 2014 we had the bust. There we had too much oil, uh, not in 20, 2007 and 8, we didn't have enough, now we have too much. Shale production, Canadian production, Brazil production was soaring. Demand was okay, but supply was outstripping demand. Now, in that circumstance, what normally would happen is a producer like Saudi Arabia would say, we have too much supply, we need to cut production. We're going to cut our own production to prevent too much supply from building up in inventories and setting the price of oil down because they have memories. They remember that if you let imbalances run, you get big swings, and they don't want that. But Saudi Arabia, in its meeting in Thanksgiving and in 2014, told the world, "We're not going to cut. We're going to we're going to let the Americans uh, let them cut. We're not going to cut if." Um, and that shocked investors in the oil companies and that's why (laughs) yeah the oil price fell from a hundred dollars where it was that summer before to that january forty five dollars a barrel those are unusual moves in price and nothing really happened on the supply and demand at that moment it was just the market saying you know the, uh, the analogy i like to use is a fire department uh the oil market is sort of like uh like a wooden city uh and you don't want to have a small fire go on too long meaning imbalances in supply and demand and the job of the swing producer that i talked about whether it was saudi arabia in modern times or before then the texas railroad commission is sort of to act like the fire department if there's an imbalance if there's too much supply the fire department comes and takes that supply off if there's not enough supply too much demand they come and they add supply the goal of the fire department is to rush to the scene of a small fire when you get that imbalance when it's small, and prevent it from getting bigger. bigger, because if it gets bigger, it burns the whole city down, and that's kind of what we saw in uh, fifteen years ago with the big boom, and then the collapse to twenty six dollars a barrel. Don't forget in February two thousand and sixteen. So you ask the question: What's causing it? An imbalance of supply and demand, combined with the absence of an effective swing producer.
1: Very interesting. Uh, when we come back, I'd like to get on the topic of the peak demand that you discussed today at the luncheon as well. We do have to take a quick break. You're listening to In The Little Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back.
0: Agreco has been powering the Permian Basin for over 10 years, supporting Permian producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. Agreco supports power systems as small as a single 200 kilowatt to as large as a 50 megawatt power plant. So when your utility power is delayed, call on Agreco to engineer a diesel, natural gas, or battery solution to fit your needs. We have immediate availability right here in the Permian Basin. Call 1-800-AGRECO or online agreco.com.
6: The vision of the Women's Energy Network is to be the premier organization that educates, attracts, retains, and develops professional women working across the value chain. Also known as WEN, our mission is to develop programs that provide networking opportunities and foster career and leadership development of women who work in the energy industry. Thousands of women are breaking ground in energy industry careers every year, and 4,000 of them are already members of the Women's Energy Network across our 14 chapters. Members receive exclusive access to mentoring, job boards, group discussions, member-only networking events, expert speaking engagements, and more. Join today by visiting womensenergynetwork.org Houston or call 1-855-390-0650. The Women's Energy Network, empowering women in energy.
1: We're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Bob McNally, who is the founder and president of Rapidon Energy Group. Uh, Today at your luncheon, you discussed as well that you believe that there is a boom and a peak, a boom and a bust coming. So let's start with, tell me about the peak that you think is coming and then we'll get into the bust.
5: Okay, right, and so the, the background here is when you have unbalanced fundamentals, which they usually are, and no swing producer, what we've seen in history and what we've seen recently is we should expect oil prices to range from just about shut-in yep. levels so 20s, 10s, even lower, on the bottom. And then on the top, prices that go high enough to start really killing demand, we call it demand destruction. And that can be well into the triple digits. So that's the range I think we have to expect over time as long as there's no swing producer. I want to be very clear, and I said during the keynote, uh, there can be periods, temporary interludes, of relatively stable prices. I call those the old new normals, right? We had one at $100 a barrel, after. And then we recently had one at $60 a barrel. So if it lasts for two or three years, and then it changes. So the next boom I call, it. I, I ask myself, what is the next big surprise coming in the oil markets? The last few have been on the supply side, shale oil, Uh, Saudi Arabia not swinging and so forth. I think the next big thing that's going to surprise folks is hopes and expectations by the consensus and importantly, leading oil price forecasts and market forecasts by the International Energy Agency and the Energy Information, so that the forecasters who we kind of all watch and listen to, they expect that U.S. gasoline demand is about to peak and decline. And then around the world, we're going to see a strong slowing of oil demand in transportation because of electric cars uh, rapidly ramping up, fuel economy standards and so forth. I think these expectations are misplaced. Uh, The EIA made a similar error back in the 1980s when it forecast peak demand based on policy and that didn't happen. They had to revise up. So I'm pretty sure uh, that when we get down the road a few years from now, we're going to realize that the fuel economy standards the President Obama had put into place and the California rules on electric cars that they weren't as successful as they hoped they would be in in sort of killing oil demand and transportation. And we also, when we look around the world and we study other countries and their policies, we think there's more talk than action there, really. Um, And so, we think the world is going to be a lot thirstier for oil in, say, three to five years than folks think right now. Now, if we're right, uh, that's going to collide with underinvestment in supply. Because what, as magnificent as shale is, we don't think it can grow by enough every year to meet the whole world's demand and offset declines and so forth. So the world's going to need more shale, more than just shale. Even if shale is really strong in coming years and we're very optimistic about it, it's not enough. And so outside of shale we're seeing lower investment in oil production. So we're going to be sort of back to where we were, we think, in 2004, 2005, 2006, 2007, where we think we're going to have a really thirsty world. Electric cars will not have proliferated by as much as people think. President Trump is likely to weaken the cafe, the fuel economy standards President Obama put into place. Around the world we see growing per capita oil demand and we think this is going to be a big shock to folks. So a thirstier world on the demand side, inadequate supply, we get an imbalance. More supply demand. And what you would need to keep oil prices stable is a swing producer with a lot of extra oil to put on the market and that we don't have. So I think the price mechanism instead of a swing producer, will balance the market, and that will require big price increases. So we would expect well into the triple digits. Um, I, we could easily return to old high levels, in my view. So um high levels um, of $140. 100. We could go well into the triple digits. The high $100 uh, range, to me, is not uh, at all out of the question for some period of time. Um, the uh, world is becoming more efficient. Uh, consumers are more used to higher prices than they were back in 2007, 2008. Uh, we may well be able to grow still at $120 a barrel, $140 a barrel, $160 a barrel. But that price will keep growing until until it sort of uh, kills enough demand to enforce the iron law of economics, which is you can't consume, which you can't produce or take out of inventory. That's just a law, and the price enforces that law, and it'll go to any level necessary to enforce that law.
1: So when are we talking about this? what what
5: well so I think we have a problem still of too much oil the problem is either too much or not enough and right now I think we're in the too much phase Uh, there are concerns about global growth and so forth and demand so the way we look at the market uh, we're advising our clients to position for lower oil prices next year okay so I think the boom uh, is going to be delayed um, by probably three to five years
1: okay and then how long does the boom last? Does boom? it last as long as this one or longer uh, or You never the- really know. That's where,
5: you know, it gets really hard to, to, to forecast. You don't have a crystal ball. I don't have that crystal ball. <laughs> and if I did, I'd be uh, investing somewhere in the Bahamas, I think so. But, uh, but um, no, I think we're going to look through, look to three to five year cycles. Of, uh, so I think we could have a boom that could last three to five years. We could then have stability for two years and then a bust. Uh, and then stability, and then a boom. Mm-hmm. It, can, it can go in sort of three to five year cycles. I think. That's
1: kind of what Shell did, right? It just kind of went in that same cycle. Right. Where it was not enough. Right. Blue,
5: right. Boston so, shale, you know, shale, shale was like the Calvary that came just in time in 2010, 11, 12, 13. Had we not had the shale boom, I think oil prices would not have stopped at $100 a barrel in 2011, 2012, 2013 when we lost Libya and we had Iran sanctions, oil would have gone much higher. Shale arrived in the nick of time. But then in 2014, shale was sort of the reason prices collapsed, because the Saudis said, we're not gonna cut under shale. You think I'm gonna cut my production so the Americans can sit here and take my market share? Do I look like an idiot, right? Right? So shale has been part of the solution for stable prices, 2011, 12, 13 but it was also part of the cause of instability.
1: Right. Interesting, interesting. Bob, thank you so very much for coming on uh, the show today. We look forward to hopefully having you back in the future. I'd like to bring you back on to specifically dissect your book,
2: oh, Crude okay.
1: Volatility. Sure. And for our listeners, please go. If you want to learn more, go. Uh, it's all available on Amazon, Amazon, right?
5: operators are standing by. It is uh, uh, Crude Volatility, The History and Future of Boom Bust Oil Prices. Kim, I really enjoyed it, and I'd be delighted to come back on your show.
1: And with that, I'd like to thank Robert McNally for coming in and being a guest on our show as well. Be sure to check out his book on Amazon.com. It's available now. It's called Crude Volatility, The History and the Future of Boom, Bust in Oil Prices. But now you know what time it is. It's time for trivia. Today's trivia question is, what conference did we attend in Houston, Texas? Remember to email the correct answer to radio at shellmag.com and you'll have a chance to win a $75 gift certificate to Fogo de Chao, the Brazilian steakhouse. If you are interested in keeping up with In the Oil Patch Radio Show or the latest issue of Shell Magazine, you can do that. It's free. All you have to do is go to www. Dot .shellmag.com and sign up for our free newsletter. That is going to wrap up another great show. We'll see you next week with more exciting news and insightful interviews. Until then, adios.
0: In the Oil Patch is where together we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business and in your community. Every week your host Kim Balotto will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.